It has been a great year, 2018, and I think for Debbie and I, as we reflect back on the highlights of what uh, God has done for us this last year, very much at the top of that list, would be all of you that have become part of our church family here. It's been such a blessing that we uh, could come here, and if you knew me and you knew the theology that I uh, believe in, I'm a very high providence of God person. I look at God's sovereignty, and that's something that comforts me and, and gives me assurance every, uh, every day. And I believe every person in this room is here for a reason. I believe God has brought you for a reason, and, and hopefully God will uh, reveal that to you throughout the course of this year. But I thank you for your attendance. Thank you for coming this morning. And for Debbie and I, we look at the sovereignty of God as he brought us here. Sometimes God will give you a clear direction on what you're to do, and you can follow that very easily. But I think for us, the providence of God worked through probably a hundred different little points of contact we had with each and every person in this room. Just kind words that were expressed and greetings and just the fellowship we feel here. This is a very special group. Debbie and I love that. And I just wanted to share with you, uh, as we look back at this last year, something that's meant a lot to us. Now, as we look at 2019, again, I think God has us all here for a reason. I believe that God has great plans for this church. Craig and I and Brent uh, will meet and, and, and try to um, understand directions and decisions and things that we should be made. But as we look into the future, and specifically maybe even the, into the next few months here, there are some unbelievable opportunities that are out there for us. So a year from now, who knows? We, we may or may not be in this room. If we're in this room, praise God. If we're somewhere else, praise God. There are churches out there that are looking for uh, collaboration in ministry, and maybe other people will come along as part of our body here. But we welcome all of that as God, like I said, has uh, plans for us. And I believe this Exploring God series is a great uh, stepping stone, a great launch pad for us in relation to that. Uh, some, of the, uh, some of the topics in the series are, does life have a purpose? Is there a God? Does God allow pain? Is Christianity too narrow? Is Jesus really God? Is the Bible reliable? Can I know God personally? These are worldview questions. You know, we, we look at our uh, neighbors and coworkers and friends and um, those people who do not have a relationship with Christ. These are worldview questions. And it's not just a matter of getting people in to understand uh, the teaching of Scripture and, and, and hopefully bring them, like uh, our sermon will we'll talk about today, uh, to the feet of Jesus. But in relation to most of these questions, this is overturning people's worldviews. This is taking uh, a view of the world, a view of uh, their lives, and doing something radically uh, different than probably what they're used to. So it's not an easy task for those of us who are believers in Christ. The answers to these questions are, are very simple. Very plain, very clear. But for people who are struggling for meaning in life, and to then come in and accept uh, Jesus for who he is, that's monumental. 
that is monumental. So I want to encourage you all to take part in this series and to, uh, most importantly, uh, connect with people you know who you think could benefit from these topics and benefit from the instruction that will go along with them. And we're very excited for that. But this morning, I have one question and one question only. What are you willing to do to bring your friends to Jesus? I'd like to start in Psalm 107, uh, verses 1 through 9, if you'd like to turn there. Psalm 107, verse, beginning in verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble, and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in, hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, for he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. I'd like you all to think about the time and the place where you first developed a relationship with Christ, that time and that place where God revealed himself in a way in which you could no longer refuse that, a way in which the Spirit interacting with the Word of God, whether it was through Scripture directly or through a a pastor or a friend or whoever shared the gospel message with you. I'd like you to think back at that time of initial, that point of acceptance. So I'd like you to think back to that room, or that room, that place you were in, and then we're going to go 2,000 years before this, and we're going to go into a room in Capernaum that um, uh, we can find in the Gospel of Mark. But I'd like you first to just think back to that place that you were at when you first accepted Christ. Remember your salvation. Remember what it felt like when you finally had that guilt removed. Remember what it felt like when God took the veil off of your eyes and revealed himself for who he is. Remember what it was like to feel forgiven. I'm sure many of you have all sorts of different testimonies leading up to your acceptance of Christ, but remember that initial feeling of being forgiven by Christ, where you saw yourself as a sinner, you saw no hope in the life that you were living, you didn't see any uh, returns or any, anything going on in the world that could really satisfy you, but you recognized that for you there was something missing in your life. There was that void that you had within your own heart and your own mind, that void that could only be filled by Christ. Think back to that. Think back to the instant you were forgiven and know that as you were forgiven, God was pleased to reveal himself to you through the sacrificial death of his son, Jesus. It wasn't just an intellectual acceptance. It wasn't just some day that you woke up and made a, like a New Year's resolution to do something. But it was Christ, it was God drawing you in through the Holy Spirit by the sacrificial death of Christ as he drew you in. You may think you were reaching out to God, but God actually reached out to you and took you in. And just remember what it was like to surrender your life 
Okay, your life that's no longer your own, but your life that you've given to Christ. We're here to serve Him. Although Christ came to serve us, the best way, one of the ways that we can bring the most glory to Christ is us serving Jesus by serving each other. In Christianity, we don't, we've given up the right to ourselves. If you ever hear a Christian message about yourself and how you can change yourself and, and, and as though anything comes from within, reject that and run from that. The message of, of the gospel of Christ is that that work was done for you. It's no longer about your, uh, the work that you do or the things that you do or don't do or the activities that you're involved in. Understand that that's all been provided for you through Christ. And along with that, where we used to be in rebellion against God, where now we have peace before Christ. There used to be a, uh, a campaign, many of you I know will remember this, what would Jesus do? Very good question, what would Jesus do? WWJD, what would Jesus do? A lot of us used to see the bracelets and the necklaces and the t-shirts. Very important thing, and as we live out our life as Christians, it is important that we understand what would Jesus do, but more important, most importantly, it's what has Jesus done for you to allow you to serve him. The work was finished. It satisfied all of God's holy and righteous requirements. That work was done once and for all. And that work now benefits you and all of mankind who will accept that message of the gospel. So as we come here this morning and we look at our lives, how much sin is okay for us to still have as we relate to, um, we relate to living our lives before Jesus? Is there a small amount that's okay? Is there a large amount that's okay? Well, as Christians, we're no longer captive to our, uh, to our sin. We're no longer in bondage to our flesh, we can defeat that through Christ. But at the same time, we're forgiven. So as Christians, we try to live a life holy and righteous to Jesus, but at the same time, we understand that through the flesh, we still have that sin, but Jesus defeated sin and death. And Jesus has given us the opportunity to, um, to transcend that through his Holy Spirit. So, looking at Mark chapter 1, um, or Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, if you'd like to move there, or turn in your Bibles there. A little background on Mark. It's the shortest of all the Gospels. It's my own personal favorite Gospel. I have more commentaries on the Gospel of Mark than I have on any other topic in, in Scripture. It's a Gospel that's very fast-moving. It's more about what Jesus does necessarily than what he says. In, uh, in the other synoptics, in... Um, Matthew and Luke, you find longer narratives, you find the parables, and you don't see that as much in, in Mark. In fact, Mark uses the term uh, immediately 39 times in, the, in, the, uh, in his gospel. It's immediately Jesus went here, immediately there. It's a fast-moving, fast-acting uh, fast gospel. And um, as we work through these verses, we just see that Jesus' ministry is impacted by... Uh, a number of different um, forces, a number of different uh, situations that he encounters. It, it's oftentimes his interaction with his disciples. Other times it's interaction with the crowds. And other times it's interaction with the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees and the scribes. 
But we see Jesus moving through his ministry, and Mark's emphasis is Jesus is Christ, the Son of God. So our chapter, or our verses this morning are also covered in Matthew chapter 8 and Luke chapter 5. In chapter 1 of Mark, we see immediately, um, we see the introduction of John the Baptist as the forerunner. We see the baptism of Jesus. We see his temptation in the wilderness. We see the ministry and teaching of him as he makes his circuit through the Galilean countryside. We see... um, we see Christ um, calling out his disciples, uh, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. We see him uh, delivering people from demonic possession, and we see miracle healings of, of leprosy. And that's just chapter one. <laughs> that's all in chapter one. And we're going to move into chapter two. Uh, Jesus is in Capernaum. Capernaum is an interesting place. Uh, we see in, in, in Luke uh, chapter 10, Jesus, as he's sending the 72 out, he, he, he cautions them and he says, and as they go out, and they're going into areas that uh, Jesus was going to take his ministry to, he says, and you, Capernaum, will be exalted in heaven. You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. So Capernaum, the, 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 the population there was in large part about the sideshow, the miracles, the, the, uh, all, the, uh, all the excitement going on as Jesus was coming through there. But for some reason, deaf upon their ears was the message that Jesus was teaching of, of he being the Son of God and his, his offer of forgiveness. So as we look at, uh, we look at our friends, we look out into... Uh, into the world, you know, we have a tendency to put people into categories, into race and age and income, nationality, education, politics, gender, whatever it may be. I'd like you to look at this message this morning as two types of people, saved and unsaved. The lowest common denominator, saved and unsaved. And that's how I'd like us to view uh, our ministry that we have, and I believe God has us for this area. So we're going to go 2,000 years back into, the, uh, into this room. And in this room, we find three different groups of people. We find three different, or two different groups of people, and we find Jesus. We find a group, the faithful friends, who are this group, which we'll hear about in a minute, who actually carry their friend, the paralytic, four men who carry them uh, through great obstacles and great barriers, but they carry him to the feet of Jesus. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Then we find the Pharisees, the legalists, the religious ones. The religious ones, we see them in the same room. And we'll see how they act. And then we see God, through Jesus, at the center of that room, teaching and reacting to the scene. So let's turn to uh, Mark chapter 2, verse 1. And we'll start in verse 1. And he returned to Capernaum after some days. It was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together, so that there was no room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, 
They let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Can you believe this? Think of this scene. Think of the first century Palestine. Think of these four men walking through uh, a dirty, dusty road carrying this paralytic. They're carrying him on a cot. They had a plan to get him to Jesus. And they knew that in spite of all the the odds and, and the fact that there were so many people in the room, they knew that they had to get him to Jesus even when they couldn't get him into the room. There was no way to get him into the room. Jesus, like I said, was a celebrity, and the crowds that were all around him, but there was no way to get this man there. I don't know about you, but I hate crowds. I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm a sit-on-the-aisle kind of guy. I, um, I really don't like being around people that are so packed in and congested. It just uh, I don't think I'm a full-blown claustrophobic, but that, that's an issue for me. But think about the planning of these men, okay? And you've got to think they were thinking ahead because they had, to get to, they had to get their friend to Jesus. They had to figure out a way to do it. They probably didn't have the resources that would have been needed to get him in had they walked through the front door. So what they did was they climbed up on the roof. They brought with them a rope, and they lowered him in. Our first point here is these men were committed. They were committed. They saw a need. Their friend, paralyzed for reasons that aren't disclosed to us, they cared deeply for him. Okay? Let's think of your friends. What are you willing to do to bring them to Christ? What do we do for people in need? Okay? There's someone who's sick or someone in distress. Well, his friends, they could have brought him a meal, right? They could have prayed for him. They could have sent him a card. There's other ways in which they could, they could pick up the phone. You could pick up the phone and call him. But no, what these men did was they got a cot. They picked up that cot, and they took him down the street, up upon the roof, and dug a hole in the roof. Emphatically, the Gospel of Mark tells us that they un- unroofed the roof, is what the original language says. They dug a hole in the roof. Think of it as if there were a, uh, a convict sentenced to death on the way into the, uh, into the gas chamber. What are you going to give that person, a tray of mastacholi? What are you going to do for a person who has the death sentence? What are you going to do for your friends who are unbelievers who, should their life not change, are going to die in that state? That's really what we have to look at. And Paul gave us an example of this in 1 Corinthians 9, 16 and 17. So Paul says, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. We need to look at our lives, we need to look at our ministry, and we need to look at our friendships and and relationships with people, and we need to say to us, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. Woe is me. Just as the example Paul had given us. Second thing I'd like to point out about these men is they were creative. Like I said, they, they, they climbed upon the roof. They lowered this guy down, and, and if you read the scripture carefully, they never came into the room. 
Okay, they figured out a way to get Jesus in there. They opened the roof, they lowered him down, and then they, you can only imagine, they're looking down through the hole in the roof at the scene in that room. I'm betting that however they came up with this idea of bringing him back up was not an option. I mean, what are you, you going to do? You, you drop the poor guy down in the, in, in, before the feet of Jesus. What, what if that fails? You know, what, what do they call it on YouTube? Epic fail. What are you, you going to do? This person is now sitting there in a room full of people, and the Pharisees are in the front, and the crowds are in the back. What are you going to do if this flopped? What are you going to do? Well, they didn't really consider that. They just considered that they were going to take whatever means necessary to get this man before Jesus. And I think that can be a model for us, as we can think of, you know, how do we have to become creative to reach people for Christ? How can we get people drawn into our room here? How can we connect with people in a way that will facilitate a relationship that can be an introduction into the gospel? Planting those initial seeds is not always an easy thing to do, but sometimes you have to be creative. And I think that's uh, what we can learn from them there. The other thing I'd like to look at these uh, men is they work together. They work together. The four of them worked together. Think about it. The four of them carried the cot. They couldn't, have, they couldn't have done it with two. They couldn't have done it with three. They needed four. They needed four men. Four men to do that. Jesus, when he sent the 72 out, he sent them two by two. I think we need to look in our evangelism as a church and our outreach to the, um, to the public as it's... It's not a solo mission. We're not free agents. We're here to help each other. Maybe you have one gift and you have another gift, but together we can create something that's much bigger than the sum of the parts. Maybe I'm weak in one area and you're strong in another area. Together we can come together and we can do that. Think of your own salvation. How many people were involved in bringing you to Christ? Was it one, two, three, four? Somebody planted the seed. Somebody brought you to church, somebody else shared the gospel message with you. Maybe there was a pastor who, who just pierced your heart with a message. But oftentimes it's not one. And it may not be two, it may not be three, maybe it's four, maybe it's more. But we need to look at the idea that we need to work together on this. We need to be committed. And we need to understand that there are cases where being together can accomplish so much more than um, just one takes me back to the wisdom of Solomon in Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toll. For if they fail, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he fails and has another to lift him up, and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. How can one keep warm alone? Although man... Although a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. The strands of the cord representing uh, you, yourself, and God coming together in a relationship which can help others. We need to consider doing this as, as a church. We need to consider how we can come together, either in small groups, community groups, or uh, groups of, of friends, but it's not a solo mission, and we need to look at it as such. The other characteristic of these men is they were adaptable. 
Again, they could have turned around when they saw the crowd. But instead, what did they do? They turned adversity into God's glory. They took a situation that seemed hopeless, and they turned that adversity into the glory of God. you got to think these guys coming out of there just felt... They, they must have been amazed at the way that God worked through that. And you need to adapt your environment. Or you need to adapt to, to the environment in which you can spread this message. It may be at a football game. It may be having dinner with somebody. You, you don't know the environment it's going to be where God just swings that door open and you have a chance to share the gospel. But you always have to be ready and you have to be adaptable. My greatest story of personal evangelism, as it relates to uh, something I totally was not prepared for, was I was coming back from Atlanta. Uh, I was down there attending a, a board meeting for an uh, organization that I'm um, a part of. And I'm coming back, and the plane, of course, was full. And in my typical fashion, I'm seated on the aisle. There's a seat in the middle. I'm like, thank you, God. This is great. I'm in the very last row. And then... Lo and behold, seems like everybody's seated down and one person starts walking down the aisle. And I'm, okay, so be it. It's a rather large person. And um, he comes back, and uh, back in that day, this was before the iPads, I, I think I had a, a Ryrie study Bible. Those things are about this thick. <laughs> and I'm back there reading it, you know. And... Um, he sits down, and um, the question comes up. He, he turns to me. He said, sir, is that, uh, is that the Bible you're reading? I said, yes, yes, it is. And uh, he said, as God is my witness, I'm not making this up. He said, is it true that my sin can keep me out of heaven? I remember his name. His name was Ghali Muhammad. He was a football player at the University of Wyoming, this made such a mark on me, I, I remember this seven or eight years later as though it happened yesterday. And um, I started to talk to him about Scripture. I said, yes, that is true. And he said, well, my, uh, my grandmother's been praying for me my whole life. He said, but I've just not come to grips with uh, what I need to do in order to become a Christian. I mean, this, this was a conversation <laughs> that you couldn't... You could not recreate, you know. And I took him through that. And honestly, I don't know if it was my nerves or what, but I, I started shaking. I'm like, this is surreal. This is just too much. So I'm, I'm taking him through the scripture and then I'm telling him about the gospel and the work that Jesus did for him and dying for him. And uh, I said, well, would you like to accept Jesus as your Savior? And he says, yes not making this up. And I said, well, can I pray for you? He says, sure. So I start praying. Again, I'm, I'm just, I'm shaking. This is like totally surreal. And um, we finish praying. We hug. I look up. There's about nine people around me that are watching what's going on there. So I, you know, I, I don't know who else was impacted by that moment. Um, but in any case, um, we need to be equipped we need to be ready. And, and most of all, we need to be praying. I, I came off of this 
uh, this board meeting, this organization, which is an evangelistic organization, and all we talked about was evangelism, evangelism, and evangelism. So I was, if I was ever prepared to, to be put in that position, it was at that, at that place and at that time, when I least expected it, God opened the doors. We need to be adaptable. One more characteristic with these men is they set aside all human probabilities and they proceeded in faith. They don't have plan B. They didn't know if Jesus could help their friend or not. They didn't know that by them bringing him there, what it would create, what would, uh, what would come out of it. They simply knew that they had to get their friend to their Savior. And that was what, for them, was most important at that time, was just to bring him there. And they set him down. And we'll find out in a minute here what, what happened. But they set him down. They lay the paralytic down before Jesus, all in faith. John Piper wrote one of um, my favorite books, a book called Risk is Right. He says in that book, there are a thousand ways to magnify Christ in life and death. None should be scorned, all are important, but none makes the worth of faith, or none makes Christ shine more brightly than the sacrificial love for others in the name of Jesus. We cannot glorify God any greater than when we share the gospel with an unbeliever. And you know what? We're not as persuasive. We, we don't have to be salesmen. All we have to do is be obedient to share that message, and then we leave the results with God. We leave those results with God. But in order to glorify Christ to the fullest extent possible, we need to be ready with the gospel. We need to be ready with the gospel. I'd like to move on to the second set of um, people in the, uh, in the room. The Pharisees, the legalists, the religious people. And you know, that's what a lot of, uh, a lot of individuals may perceive us to be when we try to reach out the, to them with the Explore God uh, series and try to bring them in. They, they probably think we're just a bunch of religious people. The Pharisees were a, were a very active sect of, of um, leaders in the um, Judaism in the first century, and, and you usually see them characterized with uh, elements of greed and hypocrisy and lacking sense of justice, overly concerned with um, fulfilling the literal details of the law, and they were insensitive to the um, spiritual significance of the Old Testament. In other words, it was all about law-keeping. Okay, so if we move to Mark uh, chapter... 2, verse 5 through 7. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic son, your sins are forgiven. Some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? These teachers were accusing Jesus of blasphemy, which actually... On on some level, it was a correct allegation, assuming he wasn't Jesus, assuming he wasn't God. I suppose he was blaspheming. The penalty for that was death, death by stoning. 
Jesus accused, or the teachers accused him of blasphemy, of dishonoring God, but what they didn't realize is they were sitting there with God himself. They were sitting there in the presence of God, but they were obviously very angry with him, and they were questioning in their own hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? You know, in any group of people, you're going to have um, believers, you're going to have seekers, but oftentimes you also have skeptics and critics who will come at you with allegations, and I'm sure Pastor Craig can uh, attest to this in his experience. You never know really who's out there listening to the message. If we look at the Pharisees and we see their level of legalism and law-keeping, we sometimes wonder, is that, uh, do we have a little bit of that in ourselves? Is there a little bit of legalism in ourselves that are, uh, that's creating uh, maybe a barrier in our own ministry to reaching others? You know, do we have certain things other than just as we understand the gospel and its message of salvation? Are there other things that we try to front load the message of God and his, uh, his, his uh, salvation and, and his, the, the, the scripture and, and promises of God? Do we sometimes add to that? If we look at the Pharisees, some of their traits were they threw away God's commandments for their own law. They accepted the oral law. In other words, they made up a law that they added to God. This oral tradition, this oral law, was a set of rules for human behavior. Their insistence upon this oral tradition actually became to them just as, um, just as important to them and just as authoritative to them as Scripture itself. This oral law that they uh, added to the Torah was overtaking them. And you see Jesus in uh, his earthly ministry, he's, he's condemning the legalists. He's condemning the Pharisees. So I have some questions for you, you know, as, as Jesus is interacting with them. Did Jesus ever sin? No. Did Jesus keep the law perfectly? Yes. Did Jesus violate every law of the oral tradition? Yes. We look at the person of Jesus and he wanted nothing to do with that. They threw aside the commandments of God's commandments through Scripture and added to that their own law. The second point is they were overly concerned with outer purity rather than the purity of the heart. They made it about what we do and not about what Jesus did. They made it about their perfect life and not Jesus' perfect life. They made it about works and not God's grace. If you think about that, Jesus, who understands the thoughts and minds of people, you know, if we're there and we're both, there's two people both doing the exact same um, work. Say we're painting the house of, a, of an elderly uh, church member. And you, you have the one person there who's painting and singing hymns and encouraging everybody else and using it as a way of praising God. That is pleasing to God as a ministry that would come out of our out of our salvation, as we outpour that to, onto another person, that's pleasing to God. Okay, the other person painting the house is there, looking at his watch, wondering why he's wasting his time there. He's gave up his golf game. He missed his football game. Uh, he got paint on his clothes, whatever it may be, and he's there cursing, bad attitude, and everything else. My point in this is, it's not the work itself. There's no work that can be done that's pleasing to God. 
The work that can be done that's pleasing to God was done by Jesus. The work that we can do that's pleasing to God is done through Jesus, what he's done by us, coming out as a form of praise and worship that we would do for someone else. We're made perfect in Christ Jesus, not what we do. It's more about inner purity than outer purity. It's got to start from inside in the heart, and from there it flows out. Pharisees also magnified the sin of others while minimizing their own. Jesus uh, tells us in Matthew 7, 1 through 5, Judge not that you not be judged, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and the measure you will be measured, and with the measure you will use it will be measured to you. Who do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a big log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your eye, and then you see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. To love others, we ought to be focusing on showing mercy towards others, not judging their sins. As it relates to unbelievers, I've heard it say there's only one sin that we should call them out on. Sinner's sin. Unbeliever's sin. There's only one sin that we should be very direct and confrontational about in a loving, um, respectful way, but that's the sin of unbelief. Sinner's sin. What a person is before they come to Christ has nothing to do with that person after the Holy Spirit has come in their life and has cleansed them and has made changes in their life. But that's not upon us to to legislate. Next, the Pharisees believed that the understanding of the law was the only accurate interpretation of Scripture. Okay, this is another another argument that you often see of uh, religious people. I don't know if you've ever run into people like that in in the church, and you see people who believe that they've got their doctrine right and whatever you believe is wrong. Okay, there's certain essentials in our faith that absolutely we will consider to be essential and, 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 and non-negotiable types of elements, but there's other things that we don't need to dig our feet in. Years ago, Debbie and I were actually involved in a, in a Bible study, and believe it or not, there was a fight that broke out <laughs> in that study. Literally. Two people. I mean, I don't, I don't know. It took them weeks to, uh, to come back and, and resolve that. But is that what we're supposed to be like? Our way or the highway? It's only what we believe? That's an, that's an element of legalism that we don't want to have come through. Next, they spend more time focusing on what they hate than what they love. It's easy to have this critical heart. It's easy to look at other people in relation to the things that they do wrong and not the things that they do right. The love that we need to have is the same type of love and mercy Jesus had for us as he came to us. It was not about who we are or what we had done, but it was about us opening up our heart, our mind, accepting him for the free gift that it was. It wasn't about a cleansing or it wasn't about trying to uh, criticize others or, or whatever that may look like, but instead... It was about him. It was about looking at others with love and mercy. The last element of the Pharisees is they only hang out with themselves. 
they were a separatist movement. They wanted nothing to do with the other people there. In fact, they were considered unclean. They were considered to be... Uh, um, it was against their law, their oral law. They did not want to associate with sinners. In fact, the Pharisees actually believed that sin was contagious. Okay, if I hang around with this person, person X, I may catch his sin. They looked at leprosy as a sign of sin. They looked at that and they said that that was nothing that they wanted to come into contact with and the best way to avoid that was to keep these people at arm's length. Is that how we want to be? I I want everybody in this room to have non-Christian friends. I want everybody in this room to have relationships with non-Christians. People you don't necessarily agree with. People that might not use the right language. People that might not live a life that needs to be, uh, that, that goes along with what you believe in. But we need to have relationships like that in order to bring people to Christ. If we're just going to pull ourselves out of this world, well, that, that's not going to happen this side of death. That will happen in the world to come when we will all enter into the kingdom understanding and seeing Jesus in his perfection and our perfected bodies. But that's not going to happen in this world. The Pharisees and their view on this is, was contained in one of the parables, Luke chapter 18 Verses 10 through 14. Two men went up to the, uh, to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other was a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful upon me, a sinner. It's a prayer we should all pray every day. I tell you that this, man, that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other one. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Two different kinds of people. I want to look at the charge of the blasphemy and, and just real quickly talk about the tension that was in that room. Okay, the, the, the argument in the room there was Jesus committed the act of blasphemy by calling himself as God. The argument in the room was the ac- accusation of that. A man claiming to be God, which for some should result in a death sentence, which was a death sentence. You know what? I don't think that matters anymore. I don't think Jesus claiming himself to be God would cause a riot in any room. I think the argument today now is, the contemporary argument is, what constitutes sin? It's a sad commentary, but you know the blasphemy of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Bible, is done every day. We see that. Can you imagine what would happen if Jesus himself went on CNN, went on MSNBC, went on Fox News. Can you imagine what would happen? How would the public, how would the viewers treat Jesus in his person teaching and, 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 and following um, Scripture and, and, and teaching as he did in, uh, in the New Testament? I think the problem is, the, the obstacle is that we have to convince an unbelieving culture that sin is a problem for them. 
culture does not want to tell you that sin is a problem. But if we come out and we take a stand on that, that is met with great opposition. You want the quickest one-way ticket out of town? You want to be run out of your job? You want to be, uh, you want to be a politician and, and have to resign uh, a president or CEO of a company? Or um, you know, any, any high-profile figure? The, the quickest way out of your job, the quickest way to be despised in our culture? Make a comment about social lifestyle. Make a comment about something that you disagree with that's been widely accepted in our culture. That may be something that the Bible speaks clearly on, but at the same time, the way in which our culture now views that is is we're being intolerant, we're being dogmatic, we're being insensitive, we're being judgmental, when in actuality, what we're trying to do is hold up for the things we believe in. And I think a lot of Christians do that improperly. They do it mean-spirited, they do it uh, in a way to criticize, in a way to uh, denigrate the other person. But at the same time, we do need to stand for the things that we believe in. MacArthur has a great quote on that. He says, Christians redefine sin, focusing on lovingly affirming others in their desired lifestyle seems appealing at first, but in the long run, however, we do great harm to people when we affirm them in life choices that the Bible calls sinful. Declaring that something is not sinful because of our careful, nuanced study and argumentation does not mean we have such research, we have done such research properly and are correct in our conclusions. A Christian who is dogmatic that the death of Christ on the cross atoned for their sin, atoned for their sin, yet attempts to redefine that very sin for which they profess Christ died so as to continue in them, that is not Christian witness. Jesus died for our sins. We as Christians, we, we all accept that. We live every day understanding that. Jesus died for our sins. But our culture is redefining sin. What we consider to be a sin, no longer viewed that way by culture. What a person who you might be witnessing to con- considers to be a sin, they would say, no, that's, that's, that's a choice. That's a lifestyle choice. A loving God would not, uh, would not be opposed to me in that way. But if we redefine the sin, what we're doing is we're taking Jesus' death. We're taking the, the atonement that Jesus, the sacrificial death that Jesus died for us, and we're basically diminishing it. We're saying that that doesn't apply to that. The benefits of God and his forgiveness is no condemnation, eternal life, riches in Christ Jesus. We need to be about giving a positive message to people we come in with, come into contact with, but at the same time we have to be honest in relation to people's lifestyle, not calling them out on it in relation to trying to witness to them, but I believe we do need to call out first the unbelief in a person's life, and then we'll let the Holy Spirit clear up the rest, but at the same time we can't be too dogmatic about how we feel toward other people. That's the true Christian witness. So now I'd like to move on to uh, the example of Christ. He was preaching. He 
was preaching and teaching, he first treated the soul and then the body. Luke's Gospel and the Gospel in Mark says that he was there preaching a sermon. But some people there were not receiving that message. What does it tell you that God controls the planets, the stars, the ocean, the sky, earthquakes, weather, animals, uh, demons, sickness? It's been estimated now that there's two trillion uh, galaxies in the universe. Two trillion. Jesus upholds all of them with his power. But then there's people in the room who cannot understand, cannot respond to his message because of the will of man and the sin within man. Jesus gives his message of salvation. We can give that message of salvation, but we're giving it in large time to hardened hearts. That's the power of sin. That's the power of sin. But Jesus was preaching and teaching. We also see that he knew the thoughts of all who were present. The narrative does not review or does not reveal any words spoken by anybody besides uh, Jesus himself. The Pharisees did not verbalize their opposition to him. Uh, the paralytic did not verbally express his faith in Jesus. But the narrative says that even though they were silent, God knew exactly what they were thinking. He knew exactly what they were thinking. Hebrews 4.12 and 13 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from its sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of, of him whom we must give an account. Jesus knows the thoughts and intentions of the heart. He saw the Pharisees and knew their hard hearts. He saw the paralytic and knew that within that man was a desire to accept Jesus for who he was, his, his person as a son of God. He saw that and he forgave his sins. We see that Jesus first healed the soul and then the body. And Jesus saw their faith and said to the paralytic, Son, your, son, your sins are forgiven. Notice there, it says Jesus saw their faith. Their faith. The faith of the five, the four lowering the cot and the man, the paralytic, on the, the cot. He saw their faith. He saw their faith. And he said, I, I say to you, rise, pick up your dead bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before all of them. And they were all amazed, saying that we had not seen anything like that before. Okay, the paralytic was healed. No physical therapy, no messing around, no nothing. He got up and walked out. Jesus first healed the soul and then healed the body. Finally, Jesus gives us forgiveness of sin. This is where the, the top priority lies. He forgave the sin, then he healed the paralysis. As we look at Jesus and we look at communicating the love of Jesus, what we need to do as part of that message is communicate the importance of the forgiveness. He forgives the sin. People will come to Jesus with all sorts of health issues, career issues, uh, relationship issues, whatever it may be. But I believe all of those are secondary to one's salvation. Jesus relieves the soul. He fixes the broken soul 
before he heals the sin. Let's keep that in mind as we bring our witness to others. The first thing we can do is introduce them to Christ. Thereafter, we can leave that up to Jesus. The final paradox here is two questions, two statements that seem to contradict each other. One, everyone is different. They're different in their background. They're different in their culture, different in education, different in their sensitivities, different in their understandings. Everybody you run into is different. We come from different places. We've been educated differently. We think differently. No two people are wired the same. So as we relate to people, we have to understand that we may have to look at individuals in relation to their 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 worldviews, the convictions that they hold, the, the things that they already believe in, and we may have to uh, adapt our message to that. Their background, maybe they were involved in a uh, in a, a certain faith or a, a Christian uh, um, religion at some point, or their culture or their education. Maybe we have to use that as ways to um, ways to try to get through to people. But everybody is different in that regard. But then everybody is the same. Everybody is the same in, the, in their desire for security, in their desire for the meaning of life, in their need for friends, in the need to overcome life's challenges. So as we're pe- appealing to different people, we see differences in those people, but then we see that they have the same needs. They want security, they want meaning, they have a desire for companionship, and they have a desire to overcome the stress and the, um, uh, just the challenges that are associated with this life. That's our mission field. That's our mission field. Trying to come into people's lives in a way that we can express this message without altering the message, but express it in a way that they can under, understand. First Peter 3.15 But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for reason for the hope that is in you, yet do so with gentleness and respect. Well, church, we're together in this. You know, the church is not an all-star team. I don't know if any of you watched uh, some of the college football yesterday. Um, Division One college football. They're recruiting these people, the best of the best. They come in and they play, and these teams are just made up of these unbelievably spectacular athletes who, who are all just have these abilities to, uh, to, to perform at that level. Well, we can't expect perfection from the church. If you're a mission organization, you can go out and hire your all-star team. You can hire the best uh, speakers and the best administrators and all of that. But as a church, we come together... We come together in in the family of Christ, and we have weaknesses, and we have strengths, but together we can come together with one goal in mind, and that's bringing glory to God. We come together with that. We use our weaknesses, which then can be used as strengths. We're open about our lives. We give our testimonies, and we don't all have these just remarkable backgrounds that just can can amaze and and intrigue people. No, a lot of us have come from terrible situations, and overcome them. We are a room of, we need, we need to be as a church, a room and a place for paralyzed and broken sinners 
who come who need to be healed, healed with the gospel. We need to be, as Jesus has told us, we need to be the hands and feet of Jesus in this generation to which he's given us, in this place in Carroll Stream. That's what we're called to be. So I would encourage you all, as we try to come together with this uh, goal over the next year of um, reaching out into the community, reaching people for Christ, I'd like to encourage you all to figure out how you fit into that plan, knowing all the while that as we're glorifying God, by doing that, we're bringing glory to him. And maybe we're just planting seeds for the next person, but at the same time, God is very clear in the mission he has given us. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we understand, Lord, as, our, as humans who still struggle with the flesh, that there are limitations in what we can do and how we do things. And we understand at the same time, Father, that the needs in this community are great. We know, Father, that there are hurting people. We know that there are families that are pulling apart from each other. We know that there are marriages that are uh, in, in desperate trouble. We know that there are health issues. And, Father, we know that um, the needs are great. But, Father, we know that the number one need, as we feel you have put us in this area, is to reach people with your gospel. Father, I pray that each and every person in this room will be motivated, will be inspired, will be considerate, as Paul said, as just a condition of their life to spread that gospel message and, Father, to be open to all people that they come in contact, whether it's in season or out, whether the time is right according to their schedule or the time is right um, within your schedule, God, just that we would be ready and we would be obedient. We thank you, Lord, for blessing us in the way that you have. We thank you for giving us this opportunity to worship together. And most of all, we thank you for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Thank you.